Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can learn more about our courses, our community, and our all-access membership at onecommune.com. Today's episode features Charles Eisenstein and the first two installments of his masterclass, Political Hope. Charles posits this question, imagine yourself as just existing. In your mind's eye, what does that look like? In this state of pure being, most of us envision ourselves sitting alone. And this conception of being an individual, at once indivisible and yet divided from the world, is a cultural story. Now let's look around. We don't need to strain our eyes to witness the fraying of our cultural fabric and the erosion of social cohesion. We are living in a moment of extreme division in which virtually every facet of culture appears to produce binary opposition. Politically, economically, and environmentally, we are under stress and pushed to the edges of the branch. Political polarization, severe income inequality, and environmental collapse feel existential. As Charles pondered all the world's iniquities, he asked himself this essential question, what is the origin of the wrongness in the world? Is it greed, laziness, envy, wrath? Is it human nature itself? Does evolutionary biology mandate that we hoard and kill in the name of self-preservation? These typical answers felt unsatisfactory. Charles was looking for the ideological substrate that underwrites our societal dis-ease. He was searching for the root cause behind the symptoms. Charles found his answer in a story, in a millennia-old mythology that tells us what it is like to be a self. This story of separation rests on the notion that each of us exists as a distinct, separate individual living among other separate individuals in a separate external universe. We believe that we exist as separate and in competition with each other and with nature. In fact, we are led to think that we have dominion over nature and it is our right to tame and subdue it. We have cleaved the spiritual from the material such that the world of form has become dispensable. It is this narrative that girds our modern political, economic, philosophical, and religious systems and structures. It informs the idea of the Judeo-Christian soul, of moded consciousness, and of economic man. Upon this discovery, Charles felt an intimation of hope. The root cause of our global dysbiosis was spiritual in nature. Our solutions will not emerge from tinkering with new technology in an attempt to innovate our way out of myriad messes. Our answers will not be found in defeating this with that. No, the world our hearts know is possible will spring forth from a new story. There is an inherent optimism to this idea because humans are gifted raconteurs. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are stories. Liberal democracy, capitalism, and freedom, stories. Story has provided humanity with an intersubjective reality of what it means to be alive. Stories have the power to unite us around shared values, morals, and passions. 
However, our current story of separation is serving to atomize us, to sever us from each other. A new story of mutual interdependence and interconnectedness may be knocking at our door. We see it in community gardens and regenerative agriculture, in communal living experiments and in the shared economy, in medical and addiction treatment groups. We witness it in open source science and in an evolving understanding of the relationship between humans and the microbes in our gut. We observe it in the pan-racial fight for social justice, which sees our liberation as bound. Charles shares this hopeful vision in his 10-part commune course aptly titled Political Hope. This episode features the first two installments. To watch Charles's full course, sign up for a 14-day free trial of commune membership at onecommune.com trial. So without further delay, here's Charles Eisenstein. My name is Charles Eisenstein, and I want to welcome you to this course and this conversation to welcome all of you, the part of you that is really excited for something new, and the part of you that is maybe a little bit cynical, and what am I going to possibly get from listening to somebody, watching somebody, um, when there's so much to do in the world. So I want to, to welcome all of these different voices that are inside of you, and especially to greet that part of you that has even brought you to venture into this um, exploration that is always hopeful, is always, that has never lost faith in the possibility of what I call the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. And that part can sit alongside all of the cynicism and all of the doubt, maybe in a mirror of the world that we see outside of ourselves, where sometimes it seems that, that everything is spiraling down into a descent into hell, that there is no hope ever for peace or ecological healing, social healing, racial healing, political healing, etc., etc., in this world. And then there's other things that are happening in the world that stir hope. Hope being not a fantasy, not a distraction from reality, but authentic hope being a premonition, um, a glimpse of a future that's actually possible. Maybe a future that you, that you do not know how to get to, that you can't make a plan for society and here's what has to happen and here's step one and step two and step three. In fact, I'm quite suspicious of anybody who claims to have such a plan because what we know how to do is insufficient to the task. Part of our journey to a more beautiful world is the discovery of new capacities, new sources of information and solutions not only to the questions that we carry today, but to the questions that will be born through our journey into the future. So I would like to welcome especially that part of you that just doesn't know and the part of you that is willing not to know for now, because that not knowing creates like a vacuum. 
It's an empty space into which genuinely new knowledge, that, that's not a permutation of existing ideas, but genuinely new knowledge can come. So welcome to all of that. Welcome to this course. Welcome to this conversation. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about the origin of the work that I do. What's fresh in my mind right now actually is a conversation I had just yesterday with an Uber driver, uh, a young man, well, pretty young, 31-year-old man from originally from the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, who as a young child then fled to Rwanda just in time for the genocide there. And through, he has a, an amazing story, but through a series of lucky coincidences and, and um, generous, brave people, he managed eventually to seek asylum in the United States. And I, I spoke to him about the work that I do and the question that I held for 15 or 20 years without an answer, but holding the question that spoke to him very deeply. What is the origin of the wrongness in the world? Like why? You know, going through the genocide that, that he went through, there's this question, but why? Why are people doing this? Why are we not only killing each other and imprisoning each other and, and harming each other, whether you're talking about political violence or domestic violence or the inner violence or the violence toward nature, the destruction of ecosystems, the overfishing of fish, the, the, the strip mining of, of the beautiful mountains of Appalachia, for example, Everything that's happening on earth, the question is why? It's an anguish that we feel inside that is translated into a question. And I held this question in my mind. Actually, I would even say in my body for at least 15 years. And the urgency of that question, <laughs> urgency gets translated into hurry. But the fundamental energy of urgency is not actually about hurry. It's, it's a craving to align. It's a craving to align who I am and what I do with what I know about the world, what I'm learning about the world. And, and so you learn things that are not in alignment with who you want to be and your sense of why you're here. And that creates a tension that if you are faithful to it, it will not go away. So anyway, I had this question in mind and, and this urgency to answer it. And, and was so, of course, there's many people who will offer you a, uh, an answer to that question, to the question, what is wrong in the world? It's uh, capitalism. It's greed. It's sin. It's human nature. We're a parasite on this earth. It sometimes sure seems that way. If you remember Agent Smith in The Matrix explaining, he said something like, I've come to a few realizations in my time here. You human beings are not mammals, he said. Mammals come into a natural equilibrium with their environment, but you humans do not. You just spread to a new area and you multiply. He said, you're more like a cancer or a virus, a plague on this earth, and we are the cure. 
I have a lot of conversations like this from people in deep despair over the role of humanity on Earth. And sometimes they think, yeah, maybe this planet would be better off without us. So anyway, I'm just, maybe I'll, I'll touch in on that a bit more later in our conversation. But for right now, I'll just say that, that I was offered in my journey many um, diagnoses of the origin of the wrongness on Earth. And none of them were satisfying. None of them went deep enough. All of them felt like a trap to trap me into actually participating in the continuation of the wrongness. Because if you're taking all of your energy and focusing it on a symptom that is masquerading as the cause, then no one is actually going to ever reach the cause. A lot of what's happening in our political realm is a ferocious debate about how to address a symptom. And the intensity, the pyrotechnics of this debate distracts our attention from ever actually going into the cause, which is uncomfortable, which implicates ourselves and our own participation and brings us into the state of, I don't know what to do about it. So, and again, we'll uh, enter into that exploration later in this course and in this conversation. Again, for now, returning to my own journey, I was presented with a series of ultimately unsatisfying answers to the question. Eventually, I despaired of ever answering the question. That despair, like despair is not a bad thing. It's supposed to be a phase. It's the phase of surrender. It's the phase of disintegration of the um, of, of holding the form of the answer, saying, okay, I'm only going to accept an answer that, that fits my expectations of what the answer is going to look like. So that despair is a phase of disintegration that creates the empty space into which something else can come, something that comes as a gift, something that is not the product of my trying to figure it out, but which is called to me by the sincerity of my quest. The quest for the Holy Grail can never succeed. The Grail ultimately finds you. What alerts it to your thirst for the knowledge is your quest. So it's a bit of a paradox. I hope this isn't like too esoteric for early on in a conversation like this, a course like this, but let's just say that you can never find what you are searching for, but the search will attract to you the object of your search, which may not be quite what you thought it was. So anyway, the answer that came to me ultimately invalidated the whole question. It was from, coming from a larger space than my question was coming from. But it did start as an answer, as a crystallization that, that came to me as I was walking through a suburban neighborhood where I had moved to. And I was surveying the landscape. It was a neighborhood with lots of young families, uh, probably two, three hundred houses, and probably at least two-thirds of them had uh, young children. 
but there was nobody outside. Everybody was indoors, and I knew why, because I could see the blue glow coming from each of the, the windows. You know, they're all inside watching television or playing video games, uh, confined into this indoor realm. And when I was a kid, it wouldn't have been like that. When I was a kid, everyone would have been, the park, there was like a playground that was empty. That would have been full of kids. We would have been playing cops and robbers, uh, stickball, football, soccer, capture the flag. There would have been girls playing hopscotch. The whole place would have been alive with children and there were not any children outside. Everybody indoors and, and I'm like, yeah, there's no community here anymore. Why is there no community? Well, I had some answers. It's because of the automobile. We drive everywhere. We don't have anywhere to walk to. We don't see each other outside. It's because of the television set. It's because of digital communications. It's because of air conditioning. It's because of a global economy that, in which we are interchangeable parts. And so you can be taken out of one place and put in somewhere else. And so you don't live where you grew up. And your children don't know the strangers that are coming into your neighborhood. And I'm like, this is a kind of separation from each other. Then I thought, yeah, and this separation is the same, the same basic template of relationship that pertains to our human relationship to nature now. Separation from nature. Separation from each other. Separation from the universe. The separation of, of heart and mind. The separation of matter and spirit. The separation of, of will and desire. So I, what came to me then was that the origin of the crisis on earth today, the origin of the wrongness, is a story. It's an experience of separation. It's our basic understanding of what it is to exist, what it is to be a self why we are here in the world. It's our mythology. A mythology basically meaning a story that tells us, that answers the basic questions of life. A mythology that says who you are is a separate individual in a world of other. Why you are here is to survive and to maximize your, your self-interest, your reproductive self-interest, your financial self-interest. Separation. Separation is one of the foundational conceptual pillars of everything that I talk about. It's not the deepest reality. The deepest reality, as you understand, every time that you look into somebody's eyes and realize that this is actually not a separate being, but it's the same being looking out of different eyes at you. Like there are these moments of mystical realization that actually are available all the time. You know what I'm talking about. However, most of the time in modern society, we live under the sway of a story of separation that tells us who we are, why we're here, how to live, how to be a man, how to be a woman, um, what humanity is here for, uh, how change happens in the world, even what's real. This is what I call a mythology something that answers these basic human questions that every culture asks. And every culture answers them in a different way, through a different mythology. So what I'm describing is the mythology that governs modern society and that has developed over hundreds or even thousands of years. 
or even longer. Which is part, was part of the answer to my question. What is the origin of the wrongness? That goes, it goes back, it's so deep, it's so complete that it's almost not, because it was, if it's something like that's 10,000 or 100,000 years old, I had to think, you know, maybe this wasn't just some bad wrong turn that humanity took. Maybe this whole journey of separation is part of a larger process. And that's how it invalidated the question itself. Yet within the terms of the question, it was still a potent revelation. So basically the story of separation, it includes a story of self, a story of the world. And it says, okay, let's start with the self. Who are you? I mean, this is something, we don't think of it as a story. It seems just like reality itself. I mean, here I am, this is me, and then that's you, and that's you, and that's you. It doesn't seem like a story. But other cultures may not have answered this question in the same way. Who are you? Oh, a separate individual. Having relationships with others separate from you. So, so that means that your self-interest and mine are not fundamentally linked. You could get sick, you could die, you could suffer misfortune, you could go bankrupt, and I'll be fine because we're separate. Can you see what that logic does in the human relationship to the rest of life on Earth? Yeah, maybe we could gain some benefits from healthy forests, healthy wetlands, healthy whales, but fundamentally our well-being, because we're separate from them, our well-being doesn't depend on their well-being. So the whales could go extinct, maybe even the, all the rainforests could, could shrivel up, burn up. Maybe we could live on a dead planet, but if we had high technology solutions, to modulate the atmosphere and create synthetic food and insulate ourselves from the toxic, the poisoned atmosphere, maybe we'd be fine. Nothing bad would happen to us, just like nothing bad is gonna to happen to me if you get sick or if you go bankrupt or if you suffer. That's what the story of separation says. It also says, here's another fundamental pillar of the story of separation. It says that the ideology of the separate self pervades science, philosophy, politics, economics, and religion. One version of it is the soul encased in flesh. Here's one soul, there's another, there's another, there's another. We're all separate souls encased in flesh. Uh, in philosophy, it's this Cartesian like the, the consciousness that Descartes described, I think, therefore I am. So there's an ammer inside of here, uh, a beer, and there's other ones outside of yourself, separate individuals. In economics, we are, they call it the economic man, seeking to maximize self-interest in competition against all of the other separate individuals outside of there. In biology, it's kind of traditionally at least, I mean, this is all changing. Actually, everything I'm saying is now obsolete, but it's still, it still governs the way that we think and the way that we see and the way that we act in modern society. 
Uh, so in biology, it's basically that you're this flesh robot programmed by your genes to maximize reproductive self-interest. Everybody agrees on what a self is. Other cultures did not agree on that. Suppose I ask you to close your eyes and picture yourself doing nothing but just existing. Go ahead and do that. Make a picture of yourself just existing. Okay, there's that picture. Now, probably most people in modern society will picture themselves alone because existence in the story of separation does not depend on anybody else. In traditional cultures, they might, for one thing, they might not even have had a concept for just existing because to exist meant to be in relationship. They're tapping into a very different story of what a self is, what existence is. They might have pictured themselves with their family or their clan or their place. So the story of separation renders us alone in the world. And if that story is not actually true, if our full beingness depends on the beingness of others, depends on all of our relationships, then if we live in a society that cuts off those relationships, as, as it was in that suburban neighborhood, where you look at the, at the neighbor's houses, you don't even know who's in that house, where you see them pull out of their garage from the, in their cars, driving away, and there's this, this face, and you don't know the story behind that face. When we are cast into such a world, and when we don't know the names of the trees and the plants, the flowers, the habits of the animals around us, or what they're for, or, or their, their particular set of relationships to all of the other life around them, like we're, we're cut off from all of that. That means because we're cut off from the relationships that, that comprise a full self, we feel alone. We are suffering a deficit of being and a hunger to recover that lost beingness that no amount of accumulation of the separate self, no amount of money, no amount of possessions, no, no huge house can ever meet. None of that can ever meet the, the need to reconnect, the, re, the need to belong. So you can see how this, is, this generates so much of the wrongness in the world. It generates, for example, what we call greed, this endless desire to consume. Is that just because you're bad? To identify greed as the cause of our problems is to ignore the cause of greed. I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think a lot of greed comes from this deficit of being, this hunger that cannot be met by the things that, that are offered to the hunger. How much money do you need to actually feel at home in the world, to actually feel that you belong? No amount of money will satisfy that need. And in fact, generally speaking, the more money people have, the less they, they depend and have to relate to other people. Because you can purchase anything that you need. You don't actually need anybody. <laughs> this guy I was talking to, this Uber driver from Rwanda, um, 
everybody in the village knew each other deeply and were, were helping each other all the time, feeding each other all the time. You stop by somebody's house and you're a welcome guest. And my, my friend, the driver, was shocked when he came to America. And here he is in this neighborhood. And he's like, well, of course, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go meet my neighbors. You know, expecting, like, here's my new people. So he goes and knocks on the door. And the guy answers the door. He's like, you're trespassing. What are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm your neighbor, and, and I just wanted to meet you. And the neighbor, his neighbor says, you just can't do that here. Now, maybe it was because he was black. But that is, again, it's a convenient go-to. Oh, it's because of racism. But where does racism come from? Why do we have the need to define ourselves by excluding and othering people who look different or speak different. Again, it comes from a deficit of being, a lack of identity. True identity comes through relationships, to community, to family, to place, to nature, to meaning, to a complex of meanings that tells us who we are. If we don't restore that, I mean, how many people are talking about this in politics? It's all about the symptoms. A ferocious debate about the symptoms. So what I would like is for us to take a step back from our go-to diagnosis of the problem, to stay, take a step into the unknown, and to allow ourselves to excavate the deeper causes of the things that we're seeing. And I just talked about the the some of the social problems. Um, next time, maybe I'll go into the ecological problems, the economic problems, how these also come from a story of separation. And what I hope that that stirs in you um, or awakens is this intuition that you've probably had for a long time that the crisis that we face as a society will not be solved by some technical tweaks, but that it is, it is an invitation to a, a total transformation, a total transformation in who we are, why we're here, that we are undergoing an initiation, and that the political situation, the economic situation, and the ecological situation, this is a spiritual crisis. A crisis meaning a uh, watershed of transformation, an emergency in which something is emerging. And therefore, to invoke the term revolution in the sense not of a violent overthrow, but of a turning, that therefore, the revolution that we seek goes all the way to the bottom. Welcome back, everybody, to the story of separation and to the new story that we can see over the horizon 
uh, lighting up the sky like a dawn, this feeling of hope that is uh, that I mentioned last time that will not go away and that is not a delusion. The story of separation as the extreme of yin gives birth to yang, the story of separation as it reaches its culmination gives birth to a new story, a story of interconnection, interdependency, interbeing, but we're not there yet. It has yet to play itself out. So I'm going to say a little bit more about the story of separation and what it has brought to the world. And I'm not going to go fully into all the details, but I'll just mention a couple more aspects of it. One of them is the economic story, the story that we call money. Money, after all, being nothing but a system of agreements, a system of narratives, a system of meanings. These symbols in and of themselves bear no power. Their power only comes from the power we invest in them. Otherwise, your bank account would be nothing but a series of zeros and ones. I mean, that's all it really is. Well, your $100 bill would be nothing but a piece of paper. But it, <clears throat> our collective stories and the meanings we invest in these symbols make them so powerful. I mean, this was one of the diagnoses that I was offered. Like, what's the problem in the world? It's what's the origin of the, of the wrongness? Well, it's obviously money, right? But money, the story that I call money is, or that we call money, is embedded in the story of separation. And it exemplifies many of its aspects, such as the way that it puts us into competition with each other, the way that it generates scarcity as a result of the way that it is created as interest-bearing debt. And I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll go more into economics and money and debt later on in our conversation. But right now, I just want to point out how it is consistent with all of the other expressions of separation. It destroys community. It turns us into market adversaries. It exemplifies more for you is less for me. If you get fired, then I get the promotion, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and everybody in an economic interaction is trying to get the best deal. You're trying to get the best deal. You're trying to get the best deal. And I'm trying to get the best deal. And, oh, I'll mention one more thing, which is related to my next little piece, is that money as we know it, I mean, we could make a new story of money. It's emerging. But money as we know it is an engine of endless growth. The growth of the realm of property, the growth of the the market, the conversion of nature into products, the conversion of relationships into services. The conversion of nature into products, that is, leads me to, to want to say about um, one more aspect of separation, uh, human separation from nature. And fundamentally, if we see ourselves as separate from the rest of life, separate from the forces of nature. If we understand that, that beingness is only in human beings and nature itself, it's just a bunch of random forces, uh, uh, generic particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons bouncing around according to the laws of physics. Uh, they don't have any agency or intelligence or consciousness in the story of separation. It's just a bunch of stuff out there. And therefore, human progress, 
means progressively asserting our control over the nature that is outside of ourselves. Harnessing the natural forces, insulating ourselves from all of the bad things, dominating the uh, predators, the bugs, the germs, the pests, the weeds. That is where progress comes. That's where, where our well-being comes because we're separate from the rest of life and so our benefit might be their loss. This mind form goes back thousands of years and it is the origin of the concept of good and evil. The, the kings in the, in the ancient sagas, the Sumerian legends and myths, they were the heroes who imposed order on the wild, who domesticated the beasts, um, who cut down the forests. That's even mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh, deforestation, who drained the wetlands, who killed the wolves. This is where evil came from. The wolf is evil. The sheep is good. The wild is evil. The ordered domestic realm is good. This was human progress. This basic template of overcoming evil and asserting dominance has infiltrated every aspect of our political culture. Of it's, it's the basic problem-solving template of our society. If there is a problem, find the bad guy. Defeat the bad guy and the problem is solved. This is the basic mentality of war. And what I'm saying is that the mentality of war rests on a deeper place rests on the story of separations. The basic mentality of war is a formula to solve any problem. The problem, of course, as the saying goes, if you have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. If our go-to solution is to find the bad guy, find the enemy, and defeat them by force, then we're, we become blind to any other way of solving problems. And you can totally see this in political culture right now, where if we could only defeat, I mean, there's an election happening as we make this course, as I'm having this conversation, like this is coming into people's minds, that if we could only, and I don't wanna like, well, probably you could guess what politicians I like and what I don't, but let's just say, um, if you think that, that, I mean, you're looking at the world, looking at our society, looking at the direction things are going, and you want to find someone to blame. Okay, maybe it is Donald Trump, or maybe it is the Clintons and their nefarious foundation, or maybe it is the deep state, or maybe it is the establishment, or maybe it is just this candidate who doesn't get it, and, and, but my candidate does. And if we could only get the right person in office, then all of our problems would be solved, or at least that would be a step towards solving our problems. This mindset comes naturally to us because it's the same mindset as if you get sick, find the germ, kill the germ. If there is terrorism happening, find the terrorist, kill the terrorist. Crime, uh, arrest the criminals and lock them up. Problem solved. Um, your agricultural output is declining. Well, find the weeds and come up with a new uh, herbicide to destroy the weeds. Problem solved. 
Or what if you are overweight and you're eating too much? What's the bad thing in you that you can overcome with some kind of psychological force, some kind of willpower and problem solved? It's a ubiquitous mindset. And ironically, that mindset prevents us from solving any of our problems. Yeah, so let, let's take a few political issues that are coming up uh, that have been around for a long time, uh, like say healthcare. Healthcare, actually nobody knows what to do about it. And that is really uncomfortable. Not knowing what to do about something is really uncomfortable. So let's make it into something we do know how to do something about. What do we know how to do? We know how to attack, take down, defeat, and destroy somebody. So we need to find a bad guy. Maybe it's the greedy insurance companies. Maybe it's the greedy pharmaceutical companies. Somebody that we can put in the role of enemy, in the role of evil. Then we know what to do. Think about any issue and how to solve it. Starting with the issue of who gets to govern. I mean, that our political system is set up that way. It's set up as a battle. Elections are, are framed as a battle or as a competition. They are a competition. I mean, this, is, um, this isn't something that we're just inventing and projecting onto the world. Our, our, it's, it's systematized. What I'm talking about is not merely changing our beliefs about the world. Because the beliefs, yeah, the, the beliefs generate the system, but the system also generates the beliefs. If you are immersed in a money economy, the world is sure going to seem like a war of each against all. It's sure going to seem that people don't really care about you and that everybody's out for their own gain. It's going to look like human nature. And the same thing is true when we're immersed in the current kind of electoral system. This points to how deeply the change has to go for us ever to have um, a world significantly different than the one we have right now. How do we do that? Wouldn't you like an answer? Wouldn't you like me to tell you, here's how we can change everything? If I could give you that answer, I would be part of the problem. Before we get to that answer, we have to rest in and embrace not knowing, to embrace the bewilderment. When we see actually the scope of the situation, when we apprehend the impossibility of changing something by finding the bad guy and destroying them, and we don't know what to do, then there's a chance for, for new knowledge to come in. Now, I'm not saying don't support one candidate over another, but understand that by deploying the tactics of war, you are strengthening the overall mentality of war. I read a number of left-wing and right-wing websites. And in a way, they're all the same. Both of them say, here's the problem, especially if you read the comments sections, and, 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 but also it's in the headlines too. Here's the problem. It's those horrible people on the other side. It's those ignorant people, those stupid people, those immoral people on the other side. Look at the abortion debate, for example. Both sides have essentially the same diagnosis of the problem. It's those, those misogynistic, 
paternalistic, dominating men and the women who knuckle under to them on the other side, who don't respect a woman's freedom of choice, who want to impose their will upon our bodies. Like that's one, like that's one side. And then the other side, it's those selfish, um, uh, thoughtless, immoral women who would put their, would sacrifice the life of a human soul just for their own convenience. Like, how could they? Both sides have this, how could they? It's the same diagnosis. There are these irredeemable, horrible people on the other side, and along with them, their, their followers, their dupes, the, the people who ignorantly and blindly follow their, their evil prescriptions. Both sides have the same diagnosis, the same diagnosis, evil. What would, what would it be like to let go of that diagnosis? Maybe both sides are wrong. And you can extend this to any debate. The climate debate is another one. Um, the problem is the climate deniers, those fossil fuel industry-sponsored pseudoscientists who would sacrifice the future of the whole planet for their narrow, temporary self-interest. How could they? And the corrupt politicians that they influence. And those, those wicked fossil fuel oil company executives and their greedy shareholders. Or maybe it's the, those liberal greenies and enviros who are using the excuse of, of climate change to implement socialist one-world government. Whatever side of this debate you're on, you probably don't even understand what the other side is saying. I mean, do you know? I'm assuming probably most people listening to this believe in climate change and are on the liberal side of the spectrum, but I don't know. It's getting confusing these days. Who's liberal and who's conservative? Anyway, you might not even know like what the narrative is on the other side because part of the tactics of war is to caricaturize and dehumanize the other side. It is almost an act of betrayal to take them at face value, to really seek to understand the other side. It's kind of to extend them any kind of empathy, to ask, what is it, what are, where are they really coming from? Because that rehumanizes them. That pierces the diagnosis of evil, to even ask, well, what is it like for them? What is their world like? What is it like to be them? That already is an act of peace. To seek to understand the enemy is, in the eyes of the partisan, an act of betrayal, because it doesn't serve the narrative. Part of war making is to propagate a narrative that the other side is evil and we're good. So that's why in, in the Iraq war, you had these propaganda stories. There's no other way to call them propaganda stories circulating about Iraqi soldiers ripping babies out of incubators, you know, and throwing them on the street. Like that was never true. I mean, this goes back to World War I. I mean, those kinds of stories were circulating in World War I, um, the atrocity stories. And probably way, way farther back than that. In order to fight somebody in order to seek to kill them, you have to dehumanize them first.
in order to exploit somebody, you have to dehumanize them first. People think that slavery was a result of racism, but it was actually the other way around. Racism is a result of slavery because in order to make slavery acceptable, you have to reduce the slave to something less than human. And you can see the same thing happening even you know, in a personal realm, in the relational realm with warring, warring couples. They were in love, but now they're going through a divorce and, and each side reaches out for their allies to buttress the narrative of, isn't that other person awful? Aren't they awful? Therefore, any means is justified to win the battle because they're evil and we're good. As long as our political culture is stuck in that, as long as we refuse to let the truth in because, or any inconvenient truth in because the narrative itself is a weapon, the narrative that they are evil is a weapon. Anything that disrupts that does not serve our side, does it? Even if it's true. As long as that happens, we are never going to have coherence in the body politic. And we need coherence right now. This is the biggest problem facing the world. It's not climate change. It's not ecological disintegration. It's not the economic crisis. It's not even the threat of nuclear war. None of these is the biggest, biggest problem today. The biggest problem is polarization. It is war mentality. Because our situation as a civilization, it's like a, it's like a ship that is caught in, in a whirlpool, caught in like this giant whirlpool in the ocean. And it's swirling, 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 and getting, getting sucked down. And, and if everybody on deck took the oars and started pulling in unison on the oars, we could get out. <laughs> but they're not. It's like everyone on deck is, is in a brawl fighting each other. And if that happens, we're just going to continue to go down to the bottom of the ocean. If nothing changes, if we don't all get together and row toward a different destination that is, that is toward a common vision that we're unified around, we're not going to get anywhere except where we've been going. Our inertia will carry us into not a very good place. So I'd like to offer you an invitation or, well, yeah, a lens to look at politics today, to look at public discourse today. And the lens is to notice, just to notice the tactics of war, the tactics of dehumanization, and to try on a different lens, to try on the lens of what is it like to be you? Where is the other side coming from? What do they, what is their story about the world? What do they take as fact? What do they care about? How do they narrate events to each other? By doing that, you become a peacemaker, potentially. You become, a, you become an agent of peace. And you'll notice that there's a sacrifice that needs to happen because it kind of feels good to be on, on team good fighting team evil because you know who you are now. 
you're worthy, you're right. If you're sourcing any kind of self-esteem, any kind of personal validation from being good and right, then are you really going to have the humility to accept any data point that violates the story that you're right and you're good and you're on the good team? You're not gonna, not gonna be likely to let that disrupting information in. Same with the other side. And that's why no amount of logic and evidence is going to convince anybody to change their mind when they're identified with an existing position. That is the holding pattern that we are locked in politically. There's no room for the truth to come in. There's no room for any data point, any information to come in that doesn't fit the weaponized narrative that is being deployed against the other side. There needs to be a willingness to let go of that. And that doesn't mean that the truth lies in between the two sides and it's about compromise. Here's one pole, here's the other pole, and they must meet in the middle. Actually, what it means is that here's one pole, here's the other pole, here's the ferocious debate, and the realization, the, the solution, the resolution lies underneath the entire debate. It lies in something that's not even part of the conversation. It lies in the questions that are not being asked. Everybody has a different answer to the question, but we need to change the question. Everybody already knows this in a way, that, that, that politics is this spectacle, this distraction, this circus. Yeah, Here's a rather extreme metaphor. Um, imagine that we're all locked in a concentration camp, a death camp. And all of a sudden, the authorities of the death camp offer us an election for camp mascot. And there's two choices for camp mascot. And, and, and one of them you think is a really fine person um, and really deserves this, this honor and has some really good ideas. And the other one you think is, you don't like that other person. And so you're really a partisan for your candidate for camp mascot. And other people are a partisan for the other candidate. And, and everybody is ferociously debating which candidate is better. And meanwhile, then there's somebody who's like, hey, but guys, this is just the mascot for the death camp. Doesn't matter compared to the issue of we're getting herded into ovens every day and incinerated. Like it doesn't matter who is the camp mascot. This is, this is a distraction that directs all of our political energy towards something that does not actually change anything. Let me give an example of the way in, in a certain issue that the debate distracts from any actual progress. Immigration, hot button topic. One side saying, we gotta protect our borders, we gotta keep these people out, a lot of them are criminals, they're taking away American jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And not just American, I mean, this is an issue in many, many countries. So one side is like, keep them out. And the other side is, uh, America was built for immigrants, these are people fleeing poverty and injustice, we should welcome them in. Uh, we should be inclusive uh, and welcoming. And the other side, these are xenophobes and racists and bigots. And then maybe the other side says, we're not xenophobes and bigots. It's you guys who are sacrificing our culture and our way of life, not upholding the rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. Right? There's this debate about immigration. 
what is not being asked in this debate? Well, for one thing, why are so many people wanting to immigrate to the United States and Western Europe to begin with? Why are conditions so bad in, say, Honduras, in Guatemala, in, in Mexico, to some extent? Why are they so, what, what, what's life like there that somebody would leave their family to, to go to a very uncertain future, maybe even to pay human traffickers, to pay smugglers, to smuggle them into the United States with no guarantee that they'll even make it, and with a very real possibility that they'll get kidnapped or something like that, to eke out a meager existence there, to send a little bit of money back home and not see their kids. A lot of them don't get to see their kids for, for years, decades even leaving the kids with the grandparents. What would it take for you to do that? To leave your home, to leave your family? What would it take? Is either side asking that? Why? Why are so many people wanting to leave? Well, okay, it's because it's an uncomfortable question to ask. Because when you ask that, two things happen. One, you don't know what to do. Because the reason that conditions are so bad in, say, Honduras or Guatemala, uh, it's because of a decades-long history of military imperialism. The funding of death squads, the support of uh, right-wing juntas. Uh, it's because of neoliberal austerity practice programs that, that uh, strip wealth away from the global south and funnel it into the hands of um, Western corporations and banks. Uh, it's because of, on a deeper level, it's because of the operation of the story of separation that generates our economic and political and military systems. The cause of this is, is everything. Or at least we could say the cause goes a lot deeper than the political debate as currently formulated can access. So that's the first thing that happens, is that we don't know what to do. The problem no longer fits into the familiar diagnosis of there's some bad people and we've got to keep them out. We've got to do something. Here's the enemy. It doesn't fit into that anymore. The second uncomfortable thing, beyond not knowing what to do, is that the problem involves ourselves. Because we're part of the system that military imperialism and neoliberal economics upholds. I hope the term neoliberal economics um, is familiar to you. Uh, it's one of those terms that people use a lot without necessarily really knowing what it means. But it's basically the regime of opening markets, uh, allowing the, the um, to create conditions where a country can join global markets and export its resources and, and make, its labor, make its labor available to transnational capital. And that's the prescription for development, for prosperity. But usually what happens is that the prosperity is exported onto the United States and the other dominant economies of the world. Anyway, long story, just saying 
that when you really study the issue, you realize that, yeah, I'm part of the problem too. And this is universal. Anytime that you identify somebody else as evil, you're looking at a mirror and isn't there that sneaking suspicion in the war of good on evil that maybe, maybe there's some evil in me too. Maybe my fervent identification with being on team good is a way to cover up my deep fear that maybe I'm not a good person, but let me prove that I am. So it is coming from a wound. This is one way to understand the cleavage of our society into opposing poles. It comes from a wound, a wound of self-rejection. In compensation for that wound, many of us endlessly seek to demonstrate our worthiness and our virtue and our superiority over others, but it comes from an inferiority complex. And what is the origin of that? What is the origin of this wound of separation, this wound of self-rejection? I'm not gonna answer that right now. It would be premature to answer that, but I would like to invite you to feel that, the presence of that, the doubt Maybe I'm not one of the good, one of the right. You can see that our political landscape is a mirror of our psychic landscape. You can see that each dimension of healing reflects all the other dimensions of healing. You can see the relatedness of personal healing, relational healing, social healing, political healing and ecological healing, like a holograph. Each part is a map of the whole. And we can understand therefore that we are really all in this together. That what we judge others for, what we project onto others is a signal of something that needs to be healed within ourselves. And in that understanding, how can we hold a certain group of people as the problem? How can we really believe that by destroying them, we're going to cleanse the world through the war to end all wars? We tried that already. It was called the Great War, 1914 to 1918 the Great War, the war to end all wars. It was called that. They stopped calling it that once the Second World War rolled around. They renamed it as the First World War. We've tried this already. It's time for a different solution, a different approach to the, to, to the problems on Earth. To do that, maybe we need to take a step back from our habits that operate automatically when we are not aware of them. What I'm hoping to do right now is to bring a little awareness to these 
unconscious or semi-conscious habits to offer the possibility of no longer participating in the mentality of war, no longer contributing to the field of war, like this psychic field. When you go online, when you comment on something on Facebook, be aware, am I contributing to the aren't they awful meme? They should be ashamed of themselves. They're reprehensible. I condemn. Join me in condemnation. All of this. These are tactics of war. I'm not saying that there's never a time to fight somebody. But when we see everything in terms of a fight, when we when our, our go-to default diagnosis is there's some bad person out there and that's why they're doing bad things, then there's no alternative but a fight. No other possibility is open to us. When we let in the complexity, when we entertain the possibility that what we judge in the world is something in ourselves that we participate in, then the solution of the fight is no longer the most natural solution. And we can become creative. Isn't this creativity what we really need right now? Isn't this the gateway to ending the fight on the deck of the swirling ship, of coming together in coherency to say, how do you see things? That is an offering of peace to ask, what is your story of the world? Because you're, you're, by asking that question, you are no longer seeing that person as an enemy. That's the first step toward unison. That's the first step toward coherency. That's the first step toward solidarity. Solidarity. All of the conquest on this earth that has happened has been through divide and conquer. When Cortes conquered Mexico in the 16th century, he had an army of like 300 people, but he enlisted all the enemies of the Aztecs into his army. That's how the conquest happened. When um, the Narragansett uh, rebelled against the English in King Philip's War in the 17th century. They were defeated because other tribes who had been their traditional enemies aided the settlers. This is always how it is. The reason that human, human, humanity has not risen to the estate that we can sense as possible, the abundance, the peace, the beautiful world that we know that we could live in, that we glimpse sometimes, the reason that we haven't ascended to that is because we're fighting each other all the time. That's where 99% of our energy is going, to fighting each other. And that fight is inevitable when we diagnose problems as being caused by evil people, when we are always searching for the enemy to erect and war against. The fight is inevitable. It is a product of our way of seeing the world. It is sourced in ultimately the story of separation that holds the world as an other, that fills it with competing separate selves. 
And that is a story that we are so ready to change, not just as in our philosophy, but ready to change in our relationships, in our interactions, including especially in the political realm. So let's start doing that. Let's start by even seeing others in a different way, by noticing things we haven't noticed before, and by asking the questions that don't fit onto the spectrum. Like, what is the engine of immigration, or of crime, or of abortion, or of uh, the love of guns? to inquire in the spirit, not of confirming that I'm right after all, but with an openness, not needing to validate yourself as being good and right. And how do you do that? The question, how do I let go of this? It's not a how-to. It is to give intention, to give attention to give attention to your desire to do this already. To the feeling that I'm done with this. I'm done with the fight. And maybe I don't know how to get out of it. But I feel done with it. I'm ready for peace. I'm ready for unconditional love. I'm ready not to see people as horrible or certain people as horrible. And so to give attention to this readiness and then to begin to see it in other people. Because when you see it, you can speak to it. When you can speak to it, you can call it into manifestation. But to even see it, you have to look for it. You have to believe it exists. And to believe it exists, you have to feel it in yourself. And that's why right now I'm calling your attention to this part of you that is so done with the fight, with the conditional self-approval, and so ready for love, a revolution of love. Thank you for listening to this masterclass on political hope with Charles Eisenstein. To watch Charles's full course, sign up for a 14-day free trial of Commune membership at onecommune.com/trial. And of course, feel free to drop me a line anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if you're so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.